what I want us to think about today is the way that the church over the years, the way that us over the years has taken the best news in the world, it's actual the best news in the world, and we have sort of covered it, bound it over with man's traditions, we've kind of entombed it, kind of smothered it. I was watching um, Gunpowder last night. Anyone see Gunpowder last night? You look, you look back through the annals of history, any denomination, at any point in history, you will see human beings who have been forced and are left sort of in, a, in the trail and in the wake of man's traditions and man's views, maybe born out of control or born out of fear, or born out of, maybe even born out of a good place, born out of a good desire, and we've, we've taken this message, this beautiful message, this is what I want us to think about, and we've added layer upon layer upon layer. If you watch the story, maybe you know the story of Guy Fawkes. I, I just thought it was about a guy who blew up Parliament. I thought it was, you know, and there's fireworks, and that was enough for me for most of my life. You know, it's the story that gives us fireworks, that'll do. But there's so much more going on to this story. And when you, when you, you see the, the backdrop, it's Catholicism and it's the, the, you know, the, the, the early church sort of fight, fighting it out. The Protestants and the Catholics just, and there's just this, all this backstory. And what you realize is that, because you, you to consider, how would anybody ever come to the story of the gospel through this mess, through these layers? And we've done this right throughout history. There's just layers upon layers upon layers in the gospel. And you, you walk into the story and you've got to kind of fight your way through them. And I had, I had a bit of a watershed moment with this. Maybe brought about by the fact that I've, I've gone off to Bible school for a year and I've done church history and I knew nothing about the church history. And, and then you, get, you, you, you realize all this information sits in front of you. But you know, reflecting back, I was at a, and this was a seminal moment, at a, a Bible camp weekend. It was like many, I'm getting old now. This was when I was a youth. This was way, way back. And part of my job uh, was, was to sort of rally around the youngsters and get them along. Get them along to come. Come on, come along to this. It'll be great. Change your life. You might get a boyfriend. You might get a girlfriend. But you'll probably hear the word of God. It was all that sort of stuff. And I sort of cajoled a bunch of people to get there. And I got them all to this place. Not all of them, but a bunch of them. And I'm sat down. And then the speaker comes up at the front. This guy gets up. And he walked away from his notes like this, all sort of fierce and went, you cannot call yourself a Christian if you buy a pizza on a Sunday. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you do that. Just like all fierce. And I don't know if he just abandoned his notes, if this is what, he, what he'd planned to say. He's like this. He said, you cannot call yourself a Christian if you go to the pub. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you do that. And he just, he just went for him. Just like, I'm, I'm gonna, it was almost like, I'm going to nail you with this, with this stuff. And I'm sat at the back of the room. Kind of, and I know this guy, and I'm kind of like, well, I hear where you're coming from. You know, there are, there are real dangers with alcoholism. We can really ruin our lives, and the Bible speaks with real wisdom about, about what you can do with drink. And the Sabbath is a holy day, and there's some great wisdom and insight from the Old Testament. And there are some great laws that we've got to stand by from the Old Testament, but that's not the way to salvation. I knew these People sat at the back. I know some of their stories. I knew that they weren't Christians yet. I knew that they were figuring it out. I knew that they looked on the church very cynically. And I saw this guy stand there at the front, probably from a very good place, and say, the way to heaven is by not doing this, 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 and this. 
building up some layers. And I sort of sat there and hoped that they weren't listening. And I didn't just sit there and hope that they weren't listening. I realized that that afternoon I'd arranged with my mate to go to the pub and watch the England game and realized that I was, according to him, doomed to hell. So we're in a pretty tricky place. But it's tricky, isn't it? And it's not that, it's not that there are not, there's not a prescriptive biblical way for us to live. It's not that there's a pattern from the Bible. It's not that there's commands that we've not got to follow. It's not that it doesn't require obedience. It's just that that is not the way to salvation. And sometimes, and I think the painful thing is, the painful thing for me over the years has been as I've watched this story through other people's eyes. Do you know that way you see the story of the church through other people's eyes? You sat there, you're flicking through your phone, your mate sat on the side of you, you're flicking through Twitter, or you're watching the news or something like that, and it cuts to deep South America, and there's a bunch of guys or girls with placards outside the church saying, God hates this person, God hates this person, God hates, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, pretty much anybody that's not white middle class, God hates them. And you realize that for people to get into church, to hear the gospel message, they've got to sign up to A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. It's just adding and adding and adding. And then, as I dwelt on this this week, as I was trying to be careful with this topic this week, as I wanted to bring it to life this week, I had a sort of salutary moment when I realized that, that I am, I perpetuate this. I do this, ask, asking my kids what it meant to be a Christian, and they tell me, you don't do this. And you don't do this, and you don't do this, and of course that's true. That's not the way to heaven, not the way to salvation. And was, was sort of struck by the thought that one day as an old man, I'll have the courage to listen back to some of my long, boring sermons, and I'll realize that I've preached rules and laws as a way to heaven, sometimes from a good place. I'll have just fallen into that trap where I've said, well, you've just got to do this to get to heaven. Something we've got to think about. The book of the Acts is brilliant because we see the young adolescent church in its infancy trying to wrestle with these issues. What do we do with grace now that Jesus has come and changed things? And what on earth do we do with that big old book of the law? How do we balance these things up? What do we do with the fact that the story of the gospel, as we read through our gospels, we come across a guy like the rich young ruler who it seems doesn't put a foot wrong at all, doesn't make any mistakes. I always imagine him to be handsome. I imagine he's just got everything nailed down, this guy who's just lived this perfect life. And at the end, Jesus finds one thing, and he just says, well, and he goes away sad. And it looks like heaven's not for him. And then we have a guy like the thief on the cross, and you read about him, and you just think this guy's not done a thing right his whole life. And yet Jesus says to him, Today you're going to be with me in paradise. How do you, how do you wrestle with that? How do, you, how do you pick that up? You've got this guy, Jesus, who comes. And we know, don't we, the Bible says, well, Jesus says, I'm not going to add one jot to the law. I'm going to keep it perfect. And as we read about him saying this, he's having his foot washed by a prostitute. Or he's, or he's over at lunch with a guy who's you know, ripped off half the town and fleeced half the town. He's mingling with sinners. How do we weigh this story up, and in the book of Acts, we've reached this seminal moment where that's what happens. They're weighing up this story, so we've got to tune in, and we get to 
We get to see whether they make mistakes. We get to see how they work it out because it's canonized in the Bible. So chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. A few other versions of this uh, versions of the text it describes them as the circumcision party. That doesn't sound like any party that I want to be a member of. It doesn't sound like any party I want to go to in my whole life. And I just, as I had the thought as I, as I was reading through this text, I thought, you know, people were getting saved left, right, and center. Imagine you're the guy in your, in, in your middle age who's come to Christ that day. And then these guys walk in and they say, by the way, some bad news for you. <laughs> you know, some proper bad news, isn't it? You need to be circumcised. And the guy would be like, what? We go, we go straight to, we go, that's a bit of a jump. You know, I've come to know the grace and the liberty of Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, can we, not, can we not have a religious haircut, or can I not wear some religious garments, or something like that? Is there not a progression to circumcision? This feels like a bit heavy, but the guy says, no, you need to be circumcised. But of course, one of the things that we've got to remember, because it, it, the idea, this idea probably seems quite a distant one to us, it wasn't such a distant idea to them. Circumcision was the covenant of God. Remember King David? David, the shepherd boy, as he would have been in this story, as he faced Goliath, he looks across the, the plains at this guy, and he says, we can do this guy. And he caught, it's one of the best insults in the whole Bible. He calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. Brilliant insult, I think. I'm going to pull it out every now and again. Just awesome insult, isn't it? You uncircumcised Philistine. What he's saying is, we've got the promises of God. This is what it means. We're the covenant people of God. It's massive. And he looked on, he looked on this huge army, people of Gath, giants, guys that really should win. And he said, no, we'll take these because we're the covenant people of God. And this is the conflict that's kind of coming together all over the churches. As the churches grew, Paul and Barnabas go around chapter 13 and 14, planting churches. People are coming to faith. And what's happening is they go into the temple. You know, there's temples all, all around the place. They go into the temples and the church grows up. There's a bunch of Jews that get saved, a bunch of Jewish Christian converts, and there's a bunch of Gentile Christians. And they're face in each other. And it's a, little bit like, it's a little bit like David and Goliath sat next to each other. It's like that. It's like the people who take great store in, in circumcision and the fact that God's with them and it comes with a bunch of you know, dietary specifics and it's regulated your whole life, Jewish law in the back of your mind and you've got somebody like Goliath. It's like the, it's like the Kardashians sitting down to lunch with the, with the royal family or something like that. It's just this, this, this huge awkward coming together. It's really tricky coming together because this was the church. Guys that, guys that, you know, with Jewish background who just had this strong connection to God, knew all the backstory, and uncircumcised, decadent Philistines like you and me sitting down. This is the story of the church. How is this going to work out? What's going to happen? And what happens is these guys say, you're going to need to be circumcised. You're going to need to do something Jewish. To, to, have, to, have, the, you know, to have God working in your life, you're going to need to be circumcised and it's a real it's a real tricky problem it's, and, it's, and it's in a sense it's the problem that the church has faced ever since when, when we're worried about whether somebody is going to be holy or not what do we enforce what do we promote what do we proclaim what is the story we see people behaving in a way that's not familiar to us that's different to us what do we enforce what can we say so that's the problem. And they rush back to Jerusalem. This is what happens now. They rush back to the Jerusalem and Luke draws us to this scene 
where all the bigwigs come together. There's this important story, and they're going to write, we're going to thrash this out. So let's, let's thrash it out with them. First guy that comes up is Peter. Here's what the text says. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question after much discussion. And if you've ever been in, you know, I've been in some meetings where that sort of phrase means these guys were here for a while. This was hammer and tongue. This was deeply theological, I would think, for a lot of it. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, quite a Yorkshire expression, isn't it? I didn't realize there were many of them. Now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. He's referencing, if you, if you want to go back and look at this afterwards, check that I'm right. He's referencing chapter 10 where, where he, Peter has a vision. And God, God says to him in this vision, it's, it's okay for you to eat now anything. We can't, it, what you eat does not determine your salvation. What you eat does not determine your relationship with God. And this must have been very difficult for Peter and the Jews of the time, but he has this vision. And he meets this guy Cornelius. And, and he finds that this guy, Cornelius, has got the spirit working within him. And even though it's just back in chapter 10, it's probably been about eight, nine, maybe ten years has elapsed between these times. And he's looking back saying, well, and it's kind of common sense stuff. He's saying, well, you know, P- Peter doesn't pull out the theological argument. He's not digging around in the prophets just yet. He's saying, look, this is what happened. I, I, met, yeah, I had a vision. It was from God. You know, and it was sort of certified by another guy who had a vision. And it was just very clear that God was with him just really clear so it's kind of common sense and 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 peter peter goes on to say and look look how we've got on with the law over the years look what it's done for us we've got adam who could barely keep it for two minutes got whilst god was giving moses the commandments for the people of israel the people were messing it up on the ground you know some of these stories he's saying look we've not We've not been able to keep this. And now that we've seen God has liberated us from this, we can't put this back on them, can we? Wouldn't that be an abuse? And Paul and Barnabas start to speak. And this is, this is great. You can imagine as they start to speak, everybody just, everybody just quiets down. Everybody hushes up. And if you read through chapters 13 or 14, you realize the church has just spread like wildfire. And he's kind of recounting these steps. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Paul stands up and says, look, it's just, we've, we've been wandering around these churches for four or five years. People are getting saved, left, right, and centers. Jews and Gentiles that aren't circumcised and miracles are happening. God is still moving and God's spirit is at work. Look at what's happening here. And this is the sort of dialogue and this is the debate. And then we come to the third guy, James. And it's interesting if you're, if you're into this stuff, if you're a bit of a Bible geek, it's interesting that James in this moment gets kind of the exalted position. You know, Peter goes first, Peter the character, and then Paul and Barnabas goes next. And it's James that comes in who is kind of, his status is growing amongst the early church. He's becoming a leader of the church at Jerusalem. And he, you know, he's known for being scrupulous for the law. 
He's like a ze- you know, zealous. You probably use the word zealous for the law. And he stands up. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and build David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. What's James saying? He says, we know this story. If we read the prophets, we know how this thing is going to work out. We know that God has got these people in mind. We know that when we read, when we read through the, the prophets and what they were saying, this word is going to go out to the Gentiles. This is the plan. This is not anything new. This is not anything that we have to fear. And they come out of this meeting, and then James says something. I think if, you're a, if, this, if you have Jewish ears, that you're going to struggle to wrestle with this. And almost we do as well at the same time, because we, we're British. We like rules and structure, don't we? It's almost easier, isn't it? Wouldn't it be easier if we had that? James says we're not going to put on them. We're not going to make it any harder for these Gentiles to come to faith. You see, the hope that these people have is the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Our good works, our best efforts, don't give us a leg up. We don't need a nudge up. We don't need to get a few rungs up the ladder to get to a point where God can save us. It's faith that saves us. We don't solidify our position by working any harder at this. It's faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done that changes our position before God. One of the things that Paul gets us to think about in his letter to the Galatians, so sometimes these stories are paralleled by, by Paul's writings to his letters and if you, if you, to, to different churches round about, and he writes to the, gosp, uh, the people at Galatia, and, and the, the letter to the Galatians really parallels this story in Acts chapter 15, and it's worth reading. And he gives us an insight there. We get, a, we get kind of a picture here in Acts chapter 15, but he, just, he shed some real helpful light on the story in Galatians chapter 3, and it's worth just reading. Galatians 3 and 1, if you're following along. It says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, you are now trying to finish by means of the flesh. Skip to verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law, and this is really strong language, worth going back to read later on. All who rely on the works of the law, and I read it a few times and I thought, I must have read this wrong. I'm going to check this in other translations to make sure it's right. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Strong language, isn't it? You read that over and you think, that can't be right. Cursed for for thinking that we might get nearer to God by doing good things. Cursed if you do this. And cursed has perhaps lost some of its strength of meaning over the years. Use that word in in first century Palestine. The idea of a curse is a very visceral concept. You are cursed if you try and get to heaven this way. 
relying on works to get to God is a cursed path. It's interesting, isn't it? Last, we, we, we think about this last couple of weeks, I don't know if you're I'm guessing you've, you've seen the Harvey Weinstein story unfolding before us. There's a reason it's good. It's a good thing that we don't search for works in order to get towards heaven. You, uh, I don't know if you've seen any, any of it unfold. But since, since, I guess since in Christendom, we had this concept of where the moral bar lied. You know, it was given to us by the church, and when we look at stories of the church, we realize kind of the hypocrisy and all the rest of it that flowed around this, you know, but the, the church tried to configure, here's, here's the line for what we consider good and bad, and as different kings came and went, they changed the moral bar, one thing was all right, one thing wasn't all right, but it was kind of, in Christendom, it was kind of come from the church, and since, and now we live in a post-Christian world, a world of relativism, where something might be right for you, not right for me, it's all relative. And, we, and I guess often there's this perception that there is no right and wrong. There's no, there's no bar. There's no good. There's no bad. Until somebody like Harvey Weinstein comes along and does what he's done to these women. And all of a sudden we say, okay, there's the bar. I've seen it now. It's between me, the good guy, and him. I'm happy that there's a bar there. You know, so long as it's above him and below me. And, and since, since this... Since this happened, I don't know if you've, if, you've, you know, if you've followed the story, but what's happened after this, I guess, is we've tried to sort of relay and work out what is, what is acceptable behavior for a bloke with a woman. And, and different, and I've, so I've listened to a few radio interviews, radio um, debates on this, and different people come in and say, oh, it's here, this is acceptable. Wolf whistle, that's not acceptable. This is acceptable, it's not acceptable. And they've all sort of wrestled for where the bar might be. Where is the moral bar in terms of what we do? Jesus does something interesting with this bar when he reveals the law in Matthew chapter 5. He says, any man who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we've got this bar that we're pretty comfortable is kind of below us somewhere. Jesus comes and he says, no, you've got it wrong, guys. To me, to God, you look a bit like Harvey Weinstein. Painful though it is, the bar's way up there. Smiles above you. Everybody sits under it. What's that verse? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all looking up there. That's where the bar is. Jesus says it's up there. And we think about, we think about what we could add to the story. We think about works and we think about trying to clamber up to that bar. And we look up at that bar and we say, man, we are cursed. The glory of God is too great. He's too perfect. He's too holy. We all sit underneath it. We all fall, fall below it. Paul also says, Galatians 2, verse 20. It's a standout verse. I should have got this up, really. I'm sorry about that. Worth just citing or I'll try and put it on the... If you download the talk later, we'll try and get it on there. Galatians 2, 20. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. I can't put that to one side. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained by the law, Christ died for nothing. That's what he's saying. He's saying, take a look at the story of the cross. Take a look at this perfect redemptive plan by God and tell me what you would want to add to that. Tell me what things you think you could do. Stare again at that story. Think about the works. Think about what you've got to offer, Ash. Think about what you could do. 
What good things could you do to add to this story? And in our error and in our mistake, when we, when, when, we're, when we forget the truth of the gospel, when we forget that it's Jesus that changes things, that it's faith in him that changes things, and we try and work at it ourselves, and we set the story aside and we say, no, I, I must do this and I must do that. I don't really need to think too much about the gospel story. We cheapen the story of the cross. We devalue it. It's the story of the cross. This is the way around the story works. It's the story of the cross that changes things for us. It's the story of the cross that saves us. Not to say that we don't strive, we don't work hard, that there's not prescription in the Bible, but it's the story of the cross that brings us salvation. And then James throws us a curveball right at the end. And if you've been studious, you'll have seen what's coming, just to upset anybody that wants to speak on this passage. He says, It's my judgment, therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And I thought I'd got the message. I thought I'd got it done at six o'clock. Should really, I want to finish there, really. be easier to finish there. James says, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So having said all of that, about that it's the grace of God that saves us and changes us and saves us, James puts on a little addendum and he says, actually, we need to tell them, we need to tell them they should really do this and they should really do that and they should really do the other. Does this addendum devalue everything I've just said? No, it doesn't. James isn't asserting here these things as a mode for salvation, as the Judaizers were doing. He's saying this is a pattern and a wisdom, particularly at this time, that you might be sensitive to our Jewish brothers who are really struggling. He's saying, look Look at what's happening. Look at these two different people, David and Goliath, the Kardashians and the royal family, the Jews and the Gentiles. Look how hard it is. People who can just, without a clue of what the backstory of the Bible is, can just rabbit through a bacon sandwich with you know, bits of phlegm dripping down their mouth without a second thought for this Jewish guy who, who can't do that. Just got this backstory behind him that just would make that too difficult. And he's saying to them, I want you to consider your brother. If uh, you and your partner were, if you, your partner was on a bit of a diet and re- really thinking, I'm going to make the effort and I'm going to be in the zone, going to get the beach body ready for next summer or something like that, and uh, you, you just you just wouldn't you just wouldn't buy a bunch of Krispy Kreme donuts every tea time, would you? And just sit there and chew through them and go, I'm with you. I am in this. We are together on this. We are together. I'm just going to enjoy another six donuts right now. I'm just going to munch my way through this. We wouldn't do that. If you loved them, you, or maybe you would, maybe you do, <laughs> you wouldn't do it. You'd st- you, you should. <laughs> you should stop yourself and you should say no. I, because I love you, because we are over the table together, because we are committed to each other, to a greater thing, I'm going to be in there with you. Your friend was an alcoholic. You wouldn't take them down the pub for a drink. And in our church and in the church, we are a broad bunch of people. Not to say that we are not to live a certain way, and there is not prescription within the Bible, but we are to be considerate of one another. Some of us are going to be perfectly at liberty to go down the pub and have a drink, and the Bible wouldn't condemn you to do that, but for others of us, that's going to be a real struggle, and in the middle of all this, we've got to remember that we are married together in union by the body of Christ, and we've got to look out for each other and love each other. Sometimes, in closing, I think it would be easier 
and sometimes me and my wife talk about this, it would be easier if it was just, if it was rules, it would be easier. Do you know what I mean? If it was just all, here's how to get to heaven, it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this. But what we need to remember, when we condemn other people, and when I slip up and I preach works, we need to remember how high the bar is. We need to remember what Jesus says. Jesus says, forget it, it's up there. You've got no chance. We need to remember that the cross, the story of the cross, is enough. That is where we are saved. We, we strive for more. We love each other. We absorb the wisdom and the commands of the Bible. But we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ.